Good morning, everybody. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 27, 27. Easy to remember, same chapter, same verse. We'll be picking up where we left off last week. I wasn't here last week, but I had a chance to listen to Pastor Matt as he uh, preached um, through the podcast, and his big idea was really helpful, um, even as a kind of setup for today. So just by way of review, last week, that section of Matthew 27 that we looked at, this was the big idea. When we deal with sin ourselves and our own strength, the result is always death and separation from Jesus. But when we deal with our sin through Jesus, the result is still death of a kind, but it's death to sin and Jesus' life entering in to us in place of that. So this week, we're going to be looking at how God didn't leave us to deal with sin ourselves. That's what we saw last week. There was four, not exhaustive, but four different examples of what it looks like when humanity tries to deal with sin and of themselves um, through manipulation and abdicating our role and responsibilities and legalism, trying to do it in our own strength, and emotionalism, just looking for the mountaintop highs that we can find as we go along with the crowds. There are many other different examples of this. If there's one thing, though, that we can't say, it's this. God didn't leave us to fix our brokenness, to fix our problem on our own. On the contrary, the foundation of our faith is based upon an understanding that God sent his son to deal with death for us if we would only choose him. And so today, if we have eyes to see, God is going to reveal to us through his son in his word the why. Why did Jesus choose to die for us and what did he accomplish in so doing? On the screen behind me, you'll see kind of a preview of where we'll be going. Four things that Jesus accomplished for sinners through choosing death. This isn't an exhaustive list. It just tracks with where we are in the text today. Number one, Jesus chooses death in order to cover our shame. Number two, Jesus chooses death in order to endure our pain, the pain that was due our sin. Number three, Jesus chooses death in order to exchange his name, his reputation for our own. And number four, he chooses death in order to bear God's wrath in our place so that we don't have to know separation from him. So number one, Jesus chooses death in order to cover our shame. We're gonna just be working block by block through our text today. That, that point comes out of the first section, verses 27 to 33. So let's read that. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and they put his own clothes on him and they led him away to crucify him. So this was pretty vivid even in the description, but just picture again with me this scene and let me even ask you the question, have you ever found yourself naked or nearly naked in front of others you didn't know? For some of us that may harken back to our high school days in the locker room, I don't know, but some of us have found ourselves in that position. What is it like to be in that position? Oftentimes, we're super self-conscious in those moments. 
Now, probably nobody was saying to us the things we were thinking about ourselves. Probably they weren't even thinking those things. Probably they were too preoccupied with their own insecurities to be worrying about you in that situation. But it's a super humbling and self-conscious situation to find yourself in. Here, though, Jesus is stripped naked, and he is in front of a battalion, a cohort of 600 soldiers still with all their clothes on, and he's mocked by them. They put a scarlet robe on him, just a cheap robe of one of the underling soldiers from this cohort. They weave together a crude crown of, made out of thorns, and they wedge that onto his head. Painful, I'm sure, but even more so for the sake of being a mock representation of the king, of crown of a king. They give him a reed or some sort of a staff-like stick to look like a scepter, all to make him out to be a king, but not one that they took seriously. In mockery, they kneel before him and they shout, Hail, King of the Jews. They didn't mean it, though. Actually reminds me of what we saw last week. The crowds that, um, upon demanding Jesus be crucified, accepted the blood of Jesus beyond them and their children. Here, the soldiers kneeling and bowing before Jesus, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, were unwittingly do what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, that everyone would do one day. Everyone would knee, would bow the knee to Jesus, declare him as King of the universe, as Lord to the glory of the Father. They didn't know that that's what they were doing. They're just making fun of him. And when they're done play acting, what they believe here to be a joke in front of them, they spit on him, they beat him with the stick that they had given him. Man, what comes to mind when you put yourself the best you can in the shoes of Jesus here? What word? What is that experience like? In a word, we could say humiliating, deeply humiliating. And it doesn't get any better from here. He's about to be hung on a cross naked. And it's about to be believed by everybody who passes by that he's somebody he's not, a criminal deserving of the punishment that he's receiving. See, Jesus did nothing wrong here. He was not deserving of any of this treatment. Maybe some of you have found yourselves in similar positions in this life, where you have had people say things to you or things done to you that have been humiliating, and what you feel as a result, we call that Shame. Shame is something that defines who we are deep down. And even if what was said to you is not true, and even if what was done to you had nothing to do with what you deserved or what you had done, it is hard to escape the feelings of shame that are associated with the things that have been said and done against us. But here we're talking about why did Jesus choose to die for us? I would say two things. Jesus endured this shameful experience so that, number one, you would know that your God can identify with your own suffering in the shame that you have experienced, in the shame that was, a fo- that was forced upon you even by the sins of others. Jesus has been there too, and he wants you to know that he's with you and understanding what that's like. But even more importantly, Jesus endured the shame of the cross so that your identity, what you feel like about yourself as, as one who feels worthless, becomes one who is infinitely valuable, as valuable as somebody who the savior of the world calls friend, as valuable as one who the God of the universe calls beloved. Beloved son, 
beloved daughter. He died to cover your shame. There's another kind of shame. That's the kind of shame that comes from feeling worthless, not because of what's been done to us, but because of what we have done. And we start to identify ourselves by that thing that we have done and we can't escape it and it becomes who we are deep down. In our minds, we've perhaps done something so shameful that even if somehow we could have the guilt removed, no longer guilty. We can't separate what we've done from who we are. We can't separate ourselves from that sense of worthlessness that comes from what we've done. But the good news is, Jesus in his death came to cover that shame as well. Last year during a Bible study we did at Terra, we were looking at the parable of the prodigal son, and I saw something there that I'd never seen before. It deeply moved me. If you're not familiar with this story from Luke's gospel, there's a son who demands to have his inheritance from his father while his father is still alive. Understand that was a deeply, deeply dishonoring thing in that culture. It was the same as basically the son saying, you are dead to me, or I would rather that you be dead, because an inheritance was only given to a son upon the death of the father. So he takes this inheritance, and he goes off into far lands, and he squanders the inheritance with all kinds of wild living, you fill in the blank. When he reaches what is his rock bottom as he finds himself barely surviving on the pods from the trough of these pigs that he is feeding, he risks a return home because he's got no other options at this point. But he decides in advance that there's no possible way he could return as a son. There's no possible way he could still have that status as beloved by his dad. So he prepares to return home and offer himself as one like the servants in his father's household, a servant. At least that way he might be able to have something to eat and survive, which was better than his current circumstances. But there are a couple of things that are just so deeply moving about the response of the father in this, par- in this parable toward the son when he returns home. First of all, while that son is still a long way off, the father sees him, which means a couple of things. It means that father was regularly yearning and longing for that son to return home, regularly looking down that long path to see if there might be a speck on the horizon of maybe his son returning home. He was yearning for that, yearning for his son's repentance to turn and to return home. But here's the detail, I think, that really struck me that I'd never considered before. This road that this son would have traveled on was the singular road that would have entered into this village and through the village. They didn't have five different options of routes from all different angles for these small towns, most likely that Jesus was referring to here. And what we see is that if this is the way in which he was to return home, he would be seen and mocked by everybody on that way, jeered by everybody. Perhaps they would try to bar his way from returning, so shameful is what he had done to his father. But in the parable, Jesus says that the father, in front of the whole town, runs out to meet and to greet his son, probably even before he entered the village gates. And that would have been considered so undignified for a patriarch of a family to be running through a village 
period, not to mention to reach, uh, to reach his prodigal, shameful son who had done such an awful thing. And we're told even more that when the father gets to him, what does he do? He embraces him. He covers him. He recognizes the shame his son must feel, and he becomes the shield between his son and all those who would cast aspersions toward him. And then he walks with him through the town, undoubtedly still covering him, arm around his shoulder, back to the house, protecting him from that shame, and affirming the identity that he has in the father's eyes, which is his son. That's why Jesus chose to die for us. He chose to die in a shameful way, as shameful way as possible, in order to cover our shame, in order to cover your shame. Whether that is shame you feel because of things that have been done to you and an identity he gives you to replace that shame, or shame that you feel because of what you've done, and he says, I love you still, just turn back to me. But there's more. There's so much more as to why Jesus came to die. Secondly, Jesus chooses death in order to endure the pain that was due to us because of our sin. Let's read verses 32 to 36 together. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down to keep watch over him there. As they arrive at this spot where they were preparing to crucify these criminals and crucify Jesus, somebody offers to him what was common, this mixture of wine and gall. Gall was a bitter herb that they would mix with the wine, and together this was to produce kind of a a numbing agent to dull the pain of what those who were crucified were about to go through. But Jesus refuses. Understand, at that time, crucifixion was the most cruel and torturous form of capital punishment employed in that part of the world. Historians will actually point out that new adjectives uh, had to be used like excruciating to be able to even come close to describing the pain and suffering that somebody would go through on a cross, where for hours on end, they would struggle breath after breath to lift themselves up just to get their next breath, all the while ripping and tearing at the holes in their hands and their feet that were nailed to that cross. But Jesus refuses this pain-numbing concoction that he's offered. Why? because he wanted there to be nothing left of the pain we rightfully deserve for us to have to endure. Sin has all kinds of consequences, but one of those consequences is pain, physical pain. Jesus didn't just die in this horrible, tragic way to absolve us of the guilt of our sin. He suffered to the nth degree, taking the punishment of sin upon himself, the punishment of the pain that was due our sin. That's probably hard for many of us, for myself included, for us to appreciate unless you've suffered immense physical pain in your life. But Jesus chose death in order to endure what should have been our pain. Thirdly, Jesus chose death in order to exchange his name for ours. We see this in verse 37 through 44. So let's continue reading. 
And over his head, they put a charge against him which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who had passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. What was Jesus doing here as he remained silent and inactive on the cross? He was exchanging his reputation for ours. That's what a name is after all in the ancient Middle Eastern world, even in many places in the East today. Your name had much more to do with your reputation, your actual person, who people understood you were deep down in terms of your character, not just something people would call you by. At any one of those moments in which these people were mocking and deriding and ridiculing and teasing him and challenging him to prove himself by coming down off the cross, Jesus could have proven who he was, but he doesn't. He was, in fact, the king of the Jews. He was, in fact, the king of this whole world and is the king of this whole world. He was, in fact, the son of God and is fully capable, if he chose, to get off that cross and cheat death. But in that moment, his choice was to die. It was to become one of us, the ones who would be truly incapable to do anything about our situation if we were hanging on a cross. Jesus became helpless by choice. He became a criminal by choice. He became a grievous sinner in the eyes of the people by choice, allowing people to think that he was deserving of being on that cross by choice. Jesus chose not to exercise his true identity and power so that those who were defaming his name might be saved. He chose death so that his reputation could be exchanged for ours. And then finally, Jesus chose death in order to bear God's wrath. Verses 45 and 46 read, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know this is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus is praying that he doesn't say Father. The reason is because in this moment, that relationship was severed. For the first time in all of eternity, Jesus experienced being abandoned, alienated by his Father. But he chose this. He chose death for us in order to bear God's wrath in our place. God's wrath being his disdain and his hatred toward sin. God cannot be in the presence of sin, therefore he turns his back, he abandons his son in this moment. We've already talked briefly about the physical suffering that Jesus had to endure for us, but now he subjected himself probably to the only thing, the one thing he was truly fearful of, and that was not the process of dying, but the spiritual separation he would experience from his father due to taking upon the sin of the world. Even we already have a taste of that. We who are fallen, we who are sinners, understand to a degree 
what it is like to be separated from God. Jesus didn't have any sin before this. This was a brand new experience for him. He had never tasted any separation before, and now he experienced it to the full extent. He, he went to hell for us. He experienced hell in our place. There's mystery to this. We might be inclined to think that because it was temporary, it wasn't really that big of a deal because he rose again three days later. But let's be slow to diminish the, the sacrifice that this would have been for Jesus. Those of you who live with deep father wounds know that it only takes one significant act of abandonment and betrayal to scar you deeply to your core. And Jesus experienced it in that moment more acutely and painfully than any human before in history. He knows your pain in that department. And he absorbed God's wrath for you so that you don't have to experience the pain of eternal separation from your true heavenly father. Jesus chooses death for us in order to bear God's wrath. He chooses death in order to exchange his name or his reputation. He chooses death in order to endure our pain. And he chooses death for us to cover our shame. So here's where I wanna go in our few, last few moments together. This is a bit of a shift, but what we see comes next is a series of miracles following Jesus' death that are pretty profound and incredible, if not a bit strange. So let's read about that. Again, we'll start in verse 45 and read through verse 54, which is where we'll stop for today. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all of the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of, and, uh, one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had been fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and they said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There is a principle here that we see, broadly speaking, that is at play, that is foundational to the life of Christian discipleship, and that is this. Godly weakness always sets the stage for divine power to be released. It was Jesus' willingness to sacrifice here, his choice to exercise weakness, his choice to submit himself to the will of his Father that sets the stage for the floodgates of divine power to be opened and unleashed here, the greatest of which, of course, being his resurrection three days later and resurrection power for all who believe in him to come. Now, I just want to unpack briefly that word 
Weakness, what I don't mean by that, what I do mean by that, by weakness, I don't mean fear. I don't mean a deficiency of courage. I don't mean timidity or a lack of boldness. Quite the opposite. I would like to say that meek or meekness is a better word, although that has modern connotations similar to the weakness, the version of weakness I just spoke of a moment ago. But I want to give you an example of true meekness or godly weakness from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, um, there's a word, anah, which means meek. It is the Old Testament word for meek, and it has to do with somebody who has been afflicted with a heavy burden but submits themselves to it willingly. Okay, that's a bit different than timid, lacking courage. Great example of this would be Moses. Moses is described to have been the meekest man ever to have lived. And a great example of that virtue playing out in his life was when he showed great restraint so often when the people that he led would give him grief over and over again. Instead of complaining, he chose to bear under the weight of that burden. But a part of what nurtured that virtue inside of him was his faith that just like only God could part the Red Sea, he knew that only God had the power to actually do something about and change the hearts of these people. So meekness then, or godly weakness, is actually a strength of a certain kind. It's a strength of calmness. It's a lack of self-pride. And what is it rooted in? It's rooted in a faith that God is going to do what we cannot. And when you believe this, you become willing to sacrifice and to bear burdens. And that's a foundational principle for following Jesus. But that principle here is on full display in a very vivid way where Jesus exercises godly weakness in this moment to the point of death and as a result, the floodgates of God's power are opened up for all to see. We see mysterious darkness at midday, by the way. Six, the sixth hour would have been noon and all of a sudden there's this mysterious darkness that covers the land. Why? Well, at the very least, it would have evoked some sense of dread and terror that something awful was happening, that awfulness being the wrath of God falling upon his son. There's the miracle, this power of, that tore the, the curtain of the temple, this innermost sanctum, the Holy of Holies, down in half in two. It was a very thick curtain that was ripped in half, which was beautifully symbolic of paving the way for all the saints to be able to experience the kind of intimacy with God that only the high priest to that point once a year could have by going into the Holy of Holies. The earth shook, rocks split, it was an earthquake. We know that can be a natural phenomena, but the sheer power and timing of this particular earthquake was such that for the centurion and all those keeping watch over Jesus, they were just struck with awe, acknowledging truly this was the Son of God. There was something about that earthquake and the way that it played out that they knew was a reflection of God's power being released in that moment. And then finally, we see tombs were opened and bodies were raised at that moment that Jesus defeated death. He dies, and then in that moment of greatest weakness, it's like this atomic wave of power just ripples out from there, and the saints that have gone before who had been dead are raised to life. A preview, perhaps, of what all of us who are in Christ have to look forward to one day I have no idea, this is just strange. And it's interesting, the Bible doesn't elaborate much more. I don't know what happened to these men and women. We're just told that their bodies were raised. Apparently they were patient and waited for a few days in the tomb and then came out only when Jesus rose from the dead and visited family, friends, and acquaintances in Jerusalem. 
I'm not sure what to make of it, except that it was meant to be a manifestation of God's power through weakness. And I think it was also meant to inspire hope in us, the hope of eternal resurrection life that we all have to look forward to. That's really all I, I got for you on that one. Jeff and I were talking at Tribe this week. He's like, oh, I'll be interested to hear what you have to say about that. Not much more, in fact. The commentaries I read, most of them conceded some mystery here too and basically just ended in awe and worship. So hopefully we can be in the same place. But finally, there's one greater miracle in view for us here that isn't spelled out like these others. And that's this. Jesus didn't come down off the cross and walk away when he had the power to do so. He had long prepared for this moment. In John chapter 10, he said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And in Romans 5, the apostle Paul explains to us why when he says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus chose to die for us to cover our shame, to endure our pain, to exchange his name, his reputation for ours, to bear God's wrath for us, but ultimately he chose to die for us out of love. It was love for his father. It was love for you and I that held him there on that cross. And so as we prepare our hearts to celebrate communion together in a moment, we don't remember what Christ has done as we celebrate communion as this tragic accident by an unwilling participant that just had a happy byproduct of paying the price for our sins. And we remember a choice that was made by someone who had the power at his disposal to end his suffering at any time and chose not to because he loves you. That gift is available to all who come to Jesus through repentance and faith, but communion is a time for those specifically who have received that gift, who have made a choice of their own to trust in Christ for these things he's done for us. And communion serves as a way for us to reaffirm that truth of what Jesus has done for us and the love that God has shown us on the cross. So in a moment, there will be two songs and you can come forward at any time after you've prepared your heart to receive communion. The two service will have, servers will have a, broken, a plate with broken pieces of matzah representing Jesus' body. He willingly laid down for you. And then the other server will have a cup of wine or juice. You can take that matzah and dip into either the wine or juice representing his blood that was spilled, that was shed willingly for the forgiveness of your sins. And so take time to prepare your hearts during uh, these next two songs and to come forward and to remember what Jesus chose to do for you and for me. Let's pray and give him thanks and praise. Father, we do just that. We just say thank you. We praise you. We praise you for your power and your love. We praise you for the power to be able to forgive sins through your sacrificial death. We praise you for the love 
that held your son there on the cross despite his power to have been able to remove himself from it. We praise you that he made a choice to die for us while we were yet sinners. We, pray for, we, pray, we praise you and give thanks that our, our shame through Christ is covered. We may know that only in part now, but there will be full restoration and healing when we see you face to face. We pray and thank you that we don't have to suffer the consequences of our sin in the pain that is rightfully ours to endure. We thank you that the reputation that is rightfully ours was absorbed by Jesus, taken on by him, and instead we are made righteous by his sacrificial death. And we thank you that we don't have to be separated from you, that Jesus took that on, that experience of hell for us, so that we could know you and call you our heavenly father for eternity to come. We thank you, we praise you, we pray that you would apply these things to our hearts in life-changing ways this morning, all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.